out of a experience of a natural disaster like the one that we went through not too long ago with Hurricane Harvey, um, the one that many of us are still working with relief uh, efforts and organizations uh, in the cleanup and to reach out to those who uh, need help. Um, we come uh, to this sermon series with questions that come from more than just Hurricane Harvey. Um, We had other hurricanes. We have Puerto Rico right now, um, still needing much uh, help and prayer. And and so we um, invite you to to keep them in your prayers uh, this morning, this week, as we go about. Um, In a world of natural disasters, and in particular when it hits and it hits home and it hits hard, uh, we have lots of questions. Where was God and what is God up to? And what is our role and responsibility in this disaster? Uh, these, these types of experiences are often make or break. So they're make or break for churches oftentimes. Um, can the church stick together uh, through some of the tensions and um, problems that are confronted to a community and to individuals in that community after a disaster? Uh, they're make or break situations for our faith oftentimes. Um, can we grow closer to God through some of the anxiety uh, and fear and, and suffering that we have experienced and, and perhaps are experiencing, or through some of the evil and suffering that we see others experiencing, or does that separate us from God? Does that make us question God, question who He is, question His love for us? Um, and so that's what we've been exploring, and we'll, we'll keep exploring today. Um, I want to begin this morning, though, by telling you about uh, a woman who is a very important woman, a very important voice in the history of the church. Uh, her name is Julian. She's from Norwich. Um, that's really most of what we know about her uh, historically. Uh, she lived in the medieval period, um, so in the 14th century. Uh, we believe that she was one of, if not the first woman to ever write a book in English. Um, and so uh, she is important on lots of levels, just historically and culturally. Um, she is what we call a mystic, or was what we call a mystic. Um, and a mystic is someone who experiences God in contemplative ways. Um, it's someone who doesn't experience or think about God in more modern rationalistic terms, where perhaps you know I go to my office and sit down and it's very sterile, uh, and I'm typing and thinking through big words and things of that nature. Uh, a mystic is someone more who just communes with God who experiences more of a relational revelation of God, uh, who typically their classroom is in nature, uh, not in the library. Um, and Julian is remarkable for a lot of reasons um, as, as this mystic, uh, medieval um, Christian woman leader. Um, there's a story told about Julian. Um, where uh, So the book we have from her is called um, Revelations of God's Love, or sometimes showing. She recorded... Um, different times and different situations where God revealed his love to her. And they're pretty extraordinary to read. Um, Some of them are perhaps more touching than others to us. Some of them would confuse us a little bit just because she comes from a different kind of Christianity. Um, We know Christianity is very diverse. And so the Christianity we experience, it's not the only type of Christianity out there. There's all kinds of um, different expressions and flavors, if you will, of Christianity. Um, But she writes this as one of her revelations, recording one of the ways God showed her uh, his love. She said, he showed me more. She's outside. Again, the classroom is nature. A little thing, the size of a hazelnut on the palm of my hand, round like a ball. I looked at it thoughtfully and I wondered, what is this? And the answer came, it is all that is made. And I marveled that it continued to exist and it did not suddenly disintegrate. It was so small 
And again, my mind supplied the answer. It exists both now and forever, she says, because God loves it. She says, in short, everything owes its existence to the love of God. And as she reflects on this encounter, just seeing the small um, um, little hazelnut in her palm and, and pulling from that um, uh, ideas about what creation itself is, what it means to be created and for creation to continue to exist. Um, she draws three truths from the dependence creation has on its creator. The first, she says, is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God sustains it. She marvels that it still exists. It's so small and so fragile, and yet God keeps up with it. God sustains it. God cares for it. God sees it through um, whatever it goes through in creation throughout history. Um, and this uh, perspective on creation is really the perspective that we're trying to get as we think about what it is to be human beings who live in this world that's so full of risk, that's so full of suffering. As we try to be people of faith who hold on to the truth that God has created a good world, that he loves this good world, and that he will sustain it and see it through to its intended goal. Um, and, and so this morning, we're, we're going to talk about that belief, um, this belief that Christians have that God is committed and will see creation through to what he ultimately desires for it. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the narrative that the Bible gives us, the story of creation, where God creates a good world. There are risk and there is evil that invades this good creation, but we have the end of the story as Christians. Um, and, and we have this confidence and this faith that one day God will get rid of all evil in creation. That one day the kingdom Jesus inaugurated will be fully realized here on earth. Earth will be recreated along with heaven. We'll spend eternity with God with no evil, no pain, no death, no sickness, no suffering. Just love and community and joy and peace. And it's Sometimes hard to keep that faith when it looks like everything around us is out of control. How can God possibly keep his promises to see creation through to this goal when right now it seems like there's no path forward? When right now it seems like I can't even imagine how creation might find its way to where God has promised us it will one day be. If you have a Bible, please open up with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is, is where we will find our passage um, for contemplation this morning, where Paul talks about this same belief, this same confidence, that what God has started and what God desires will ultimately be brought to fruition, despite whatever may come in the process. We pick it up in Romans 8, verse 28. A very classic verse. You're probably familiar with this. Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who justified, he has also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, now indeed interceding for us. Who, again, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution, will famine, will hurricanes, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The confidence that Paul has here that all things will work for good for those who love and are loved by God. That nothing can separate us from this love. That once Jesus has died for us and has been risen and now reigns as the Lord over creation, that we can have a, a sure faith, that we can be confident and convicted that nothing will get in the way of God's plans for creation. This is the belief that Christians often call providence. That's kind of the theological term for this belief. Um, kind of a simple definition of, of providence would be, it's, it's the belief that God continues to work in and through creation in order to see his ultimate will accomplished for creation. This is what Julian is getting at of Norwich when she, she says, things exist because God made them. And they exist and they continue to exist because God loves them. And they exist and continue to exist and will arrive at their destination because God sustains them. Because God is acting in history to make sure that his will is accomplished. One scholar gives a, a more detailed definition of providence. John Yoder says this, Providence is the conviction or the confidence that the, invi- the, the events in history are under God's control. It's the confidence or the conviction that the events in history are under God's control. He says, this manifests itself in ways that are both beyond our discerning and our manipulating. The pattern of God's controlling of these events may occasionally be perceived by the prophet, but most often is later recognized by the community. And it's this belief that Christians hold on to in the midst of disasters like a hurricane or an earthquake, or even a what we might call a moral evil, a mass shooting, uh, or, or some... Um, tragedy that that comes from another human being. This belief that nothing will happen in creation, not even the worst events in creation, that will somehow get creation or you and I off the course God has designed for us. A course for us to receive salvation, for creation to be renewed. It's called providence. And I want to work out, tease out with you this morning, uh, very briefly, three aspects of providence, three aspects of, of the Christian's belief that God um, has some sort of control over the events of history and that we can be sure that his will will be ultimately accomplished. The first thing I wanted to kind of tease out with you is, is that providence, um, I believe, is an outworking of God's wisdom. 
The ability for God to guide history towards his intended goal is is one of the functions of God's existence as an all-wise being. So when we say things like history's events are in God's control, we can easily get off track depending on what we mean by that word control. You maybe have worked for a micromanager or have worked for someone who does no managing. And, and you know this word control is flexible. Someone can have control of a situation in an indirect way. Other people have control over situations by pulling every string and lever, by making every decision. And providence or, or understanding how God intervenes in the world to accomplish his will usually falls somewhere on a spectrum between randomness and chaos and determinism or fatalism. Determinism or fatalism would be understanding God's control of history as a meticulous control. That every small, tiny little decision and event in history is controlled and caused and desired by God. On the other side, right, it could just be random. Things could just happen and God could not be in control at all. And when you, when you talk about providence or God's relationship with the world, usually you're landing somewhere here on this spectrum. For a lot of people, it is comforting to emphasize God's sovereignty to the exclusion of free will or other free agents in God's world um, because it guarantees God's conclusion to the story. If God is pulling every single lever, if he's making every decision, then we can be pretty sure without any question, right? That if God says this is what's going to be, that's what's going to be. Because nothing has ever been that hasn't been a direct result of God's personal and direct will. For some, though, including myself, this kind of determinism or meticulous control comes at too high of a cost. It, it, it starts to make God look like a moral monster. It starts to warp lots of the other dominant themes we have in Scripture. I think most of us would be uncomfortable saying things such as God orchestrated the Holocaust. It was God's idea. It was God's direct will. God wanted it to happen. It was a necessary part of God's plan to achieve salvation, redemption, the reconciliation of all things. When we look closer at scriptures that we have, like Romans eight twenty-eight here, all things work together um, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, we, we've got to get very specific and very clear here. Um, Paul doesn't say here that everything that happens is God's doing. All things happen because God did them, and they will turn out okay. He doesn't say that everything that happens is a good thing. So that we have to look at at horrible events in our own life or in history and say, well, that was actually a good thing. Without that, something else could not have happened. What he does say is, is simply this, right? We just got to read it simply. He says, everything that does happen will eventually turn out for the good of creation. Will eventually conform itself to the loving desire of God for creation's destiny. And we, we need to, I think, rethink what we mean when we say control, when we talk about sovereignty. Here's what I've found. Those who need to major on sovereignty and control 
who have to rely on God being in, in complete control of everything to the exclusion of other people or human beings being able to make decisions and influence the world in perhaps negative ways that perhaps God doesn't desire, usually do so because they don't have a very high view of God's wisdom. For you and I, it's easy to see why a God who's not in complete control of everything is an uncomfortable God. Because when you and I are not in complete control of everything, we usually can't guarantee the outcome of something. Even when we're in control of things, usually we can't guarantee the outcome of everything. But particularly when there's other people involved. We want to say, look, this was not just me doing this. This was a result of a whole bunch of people doing all kinds of different things. What you see right now, what you'll see in the future, is maybe not just exactly what I wanted. It's maybe not just exactly what I wanted to have happened. But the reason you and I are unable to see our desires reach fruition if we're not in control of everything is because we're not all wise. In fact, we're usually not that smart at all. We're very limited creatures. But imagine a being, in this case God, who, who, who has infinite wisdom, who has infinite knowledge. You might think of a, a, a chess game as an example here. Um, there are perhaps two ways you could determine and make sure that you'll win a chess game. In this case, God is the chess player. His opponent is history. To win the game would be to bring history to where he wants it to come. One way would be to control the other player's movements. It's very easy for me to beat you in checkers. I don't play chess. Too complicated. But if we were playing checkers, I could easily beat you if I moved your pieces for you. In fact, that's how I beat people in games, okay? They look away, move the piece, ta-da, I won. On our honeymoon, Lindsay and I were playing a game, and she was beating me, and mysteriously the AC turned off in our uh, little bungalow we were at on the island, and then I went on a rampage and just dominated and controlled, and she was sweating, and she couldn't think straight, and she was like, this is not fair. I did not turn that AC off, but it's something I would do. Okay, I turned the AC off. But the point is, right, I, I won. You can control the outcome, right, if you can control the other opponent's moves. But imagine if I was smart enough, if the chess player was smart enough, maybe we can build a computer kind of like this, that... I don't need to control the other players, other players' moves because on a chessboard, I actually know every single possible move the other opponent can make before they make it. And to every single one of the endless possibilities of that player making a, a chess move, I already have a winning strategy planned. So that no matter what happens on the chessboard or in the analogy, the arena of history, I already have it planned out worked out, mapped out, and ready to take that move, even if it's not what I wanted necessarily, and conform it to my will. I'll give you another analogy that I, I, I experienced personally, which is um, teaching in the classroom. Uh, I've been in the classroom for about eight years now, uh, both as a high school teacher and as a, a college professor. And I think, maybe I'm, I'm overestimating my abilities here, but I think it would be rare for someone to walk by my classroom and say, he is not in control. That young man right there has no control over that classroom. 
Typically, I'm, I'm in control of the classroom. But w- what I mean when I say I'm in control of the classroom, I don't mean that I'm making every decision for these students. I don't mean that I've determined what they are coming from from home, what they've eaten that day, too much sugar, too little sugar, what relationships are going on between them that might cause them to argue or be distracted. What I mean is that I have a plan. And I'm skilled enough in my trade to take whatever they bring to the table and work it towards accomplishing my plan. You've maybe had a teacher like this, if you can think through. We have lots of people in education. You, you know this. You go into the classroom with a plan. I'll have a set of discussion questions. But before anyone answers, before I know their answers, I actually know where the discussion will lead us. And a fight might break out in the room. And I can guarantee you this, I had not planned on that fight. I didn't choose for them to fight. I didn't want for them to fight. But through my skill, I'll take that fight, that tension, that argument, and I'll move it towards where I want the class to be. What I want us to be learning and thinking about how I want us to be growing as human beings. Or perhaps you'll, you'll walk by the classroom and you'll say, that seems out of control. Maybe the day was a particularly crazy day and it was kind of out of control. The week was kind of out of control. But if you put it into a larger perspective of the entire school year, you might think, well, it wasn't ultimately out of control. He gathered what had happened there. He, he, he responded in the correct way. And at the end of the school year, the class was exactly where it was planned on being. They had learned this and this and this. They'd grown like this as human beings. Their relationships had deepened in this way and that way. This is, I think, a better metaphor for how God interacts with the world, how he controls history's events. Not a meticulous control where God might seem to be the author of evil, the source of evil, but a wise control where God takes sometimes horrific elements, tragedies, evils, and God says, that can't keep me from accomplishing what I want to do. I'll take that and I'll react to it in such a way that it will work for good. So we think of an event, perhaps the, the epitome, right, of, of evil experienced in history, like the Holocaust. And you and I, in hindsight, can look back and see some good things that have come from that. We have literature that continues to inspire us and warn us. We have stories of survivors and hope and faith. We have the history of, or the lesson of history to avoid as we go forward into the future. But, but we're not obligated, I think, as Christians to say that God needed the Holocaust to happen to accomplish those good things. All I think Scripture requires us to say is that the Holocaust cannot stop God from getting creation to where he wanted it to go. In fact, as the Holocaust arises, God is immediately already reacting to those evil chess moves to work good, to steer history towards his intended salvation. Providence, God's guiding hand over history, is an outworking, I think, of God's infinite wisdom. We might say as well that providence is a belief, is an activity of God that's surrounded by mystery. It's very hard to determine exactly where and how and why God is working, particularly in the moments. 
and the fog of war, you might say. I don't know if any of you have watched the Vietnam documentary. Uh, it was just released on PBS from Ken Burns. Um, I've only watched a couple episodes. I'm not a Vietnam War expert, uh, and I'm not going to wade into the politics here of the Vietnam War. I mean, I am. I just don't want you to worry about it. Um, but just from the first couple episodes, what I, what I realized very quickly out of my vast ignorance is that there are a lot of different perspectives to the Vietnam War. And instantly enough, most of them don't contradict each other. Most of them are complementary. I mean, the testimony of the Vietnamese soldier goes hand in hand with the testimony of the Vietnamese U.S. veteran. It goes hand in hand with the testimony of the French leader in Vietnam at the time. It goes hand in hand with the historical evidence that we have about what was happening and why it was happening in the Vietnam War. Here's what's difficult, though. During that time period, it's very hard to know why or when or where things are happening. We have a term for this called the fog of war, right? During wartime, usually governments aren't being completely forthtelling to one another. You have some secrets. You might be spreading some false information to confuse the enemy. You You don't play all your cards in front of the whole world. And the people on the ground sometimes don't know why they're doing something. And sometimes in the judgment of history later, you might look back and think, okay, maybe we had wrong information, or they had wrong information, or there were more complicated factors to all of this than we thought at the time. And it doesn't necessarily mean someone was wrong or someone was bad. It just means the world, like it normally is, is more complicated than we like to think about it. I think providence is a mysterious thing. When we come to hur- hurricanes and tornadoes, um, you have those who are very quick to try to say exactly why this happened, why God did this or is using this, or what God's going to do because of it. And I think like most places in theology where you step out of mystery, you step into danger. Um, so as a, as a theology professor, I can tell you this, almost every big belief in theology is a belief of two kind of seemingly contradictory things. And what it means to be, have a good theology is that you can hold both of these things together at the same time without dropping one or dropping the other. And that always results in mystery. And when you look historically at what Christians have said is heresy, this is wrong thinking, it's almost always actually people over-explaining the mystery. So the Trinity, for instance, God is one being or substance who's existed eternally as three persons, super clear to everybody. The reason we use those words is because those words are very clear that it's not a contradiction. God's not three persons and one person. That violates the law of non-contradictions. Language is pointless at that point if we affirm that as a truth. We say God's one being and three persons. Let me in on a secret. Let me let you on a secret, though. Just because we use those words, that doesn't explain what we mean by it. Still today, people are confused and debate and write very good, thought-provoking articles on what do we mean by person? What do we mean by being? How do we put those two together? But here's heresy for you when I'm teaching college students and they're trying to understand the Trinity and they take it out of this mystery and say, well, here's what's happening. It's one being who just plays three different roles. I can understand that. You go, yes, you can understand that, because it's heresy. <laughs> we call that modalism. You've over-explained it. 
Now there's really no threeness. The threeness is a pretend thing in that scheme. You drop the threeness so that you could understand it. And now you only have the oneness. Or when it comes to the person of Jesus, Jesus is both God and man. These things seem to be contradictory. When you walk out of bounds in theology, what you've done is you've dropped one so that you can explain it and understand it. And I think this is commonly the case in all types of thoughts and and situations when it comes to God. Obviously, you and I are not infallible. We're not all-knowing. It makes perfect sense that if God's involved, it's going to be largely a mystery to us. And, And much of good theology is just trying to retain that mystery, to be okay with the mystery, to allow the mystery to lead us to worship and faith and trust. So a hurricane hits, and, and before Harvey has even left, I'm talking to a pastor from New York who claims that the hurricane in Houston was God's judgment upon Houston for a list of, of grievances that she had compiled over the years, including but not limited to the fact that Houston elected a lesbian mayor. Um, what's interesting is um, this is actually a pretty commonly played idea. Um, so when something happens, you have religious leaders come out and say it's a judgment against those people. And those people are usually people who disagree with you politically. Ironically, that seems to be who God likes to judge and destroy. It's the people who have different ideological beliefs than you do. So if you're conservative, he's judging the liberals. If you're liberal, he's judging the conservatives. Um, more fascinatingly, so I did a little bit of research, and what I found is most hurricanes occur to cities on the coast. <laughs> and that, that actually is a much better predictor of where and when and why hurricanes occur than morals or ideology. And, and there's tornadoes that um, in Oklahoma they cluster, kind of in that whole little area they, they cluster and, and destroy. Um, and and Years ago, there was a tornado, uh, some, a couple tornadoes that came through and uh, caused some, some destruction, and, and one toppled over this church. And the church was having an assembly or something to, and, and the gist of it again, they made a political decision to uh, be okay with homosexual leaders in their church. And so conservative Christians said, this cannot be any clearer example of God's judgment. You sent a tornado and destroyed that building where they were meeting to make this decision. <clears throat> Once again, though, right, these, these tornadoes, I mean, they just stay there in that whole Bible belt where the majority of the destruction are not people making decisions that go against what these conservatives think is the, the right way to think about um, social issues and, and church polity and church leadership and things of that nature. Um, you and I need to, I think, have a big degree of humility when it comes to trying to discern why and what God is doing, who might be the ultimate agent source behind something happening. For lots of reasons, one of which I think is we live in the fog of war. I've said before, biblically, the worldview presented to us is one of warfare. There's evil forces at work in the world. You and I often contribute to them or the source of them. And God, through Jesus and the Spirit, is at work against those forces to bring hope and peace and healing and light and comfort and joy, salvation. We don't live in a vacation time. We live in a war time. And just as the fog of war makes things difficult to discern, so it makes you and I have 
difficulty of discerning exactly why things are happening. What we do is sometimes in the Bible, we take things that are said and we extrapolate larger principles from them that are not required by those texts or stories. Um, this is called an underdetermined fact or a piece of underdetermined evidence. So, for instance, you have in the Old Testament a time or place where God uses a natural disaster to bring judgment on a city. There are lots of things we could say about these texts or stories, um, but what lots of people do is say, aha, God used this tornado or hurricane or natural disaster to bring judgment upon this city for some sins that they had done. Therefore, every natural disaster must be judgment against some sort of sins that were done in that city. And so our job is to look for those sins and declare why exactly God had brought those natural disasters. Let me ask you this. Does that fact or piece of evidence require that conclusion? No. The only thing that's required by that evidence is saying, okay, that city at that time with that natural disaster was because of this. But there's nothing there in the text that subs back and says, therefore, Every natural disaster is because of that. We take underdetermined texts and we extrapolate them into large principles that get us kind of out of whack. And instead of responding to evil the way that Jesus, I think, postures us to respond, which is love and compassion, we respond to evil with judgment and name-calling. We think our role is not to pray and to help. It's to list off all the things that those people had done wrong which is why they were hurt and we weren't. It gets us all twisted up in this dangerous, confused understanding or attempt to understand what's happened. John Yoder, he he said that these patterns of providence are occasionally perceived by prophets, but most likely seen in hindsight by the community, which I think is true of providential acts. What we have in the scriptures are extraordinary examples of God's providence, and they've been divinely revealed to somebody, a prophet or the author here of scripture. When the hurricane hits Houston, I have not been given a divine revelation about why this hurricane had come, and so I cannot discern the providential act there. I cannot make a clear judgment. And if I thought that I had been given that revelation, I wouldn't expect anyone else to believe me. Does that make sense? I could say, yes, God told me this is why it happened, but unless he revealed it to everybody, I would expect people to look at me and go, well, who are you? I might be right, but I would expect that. Providence is a mystery. It's most easily, I think, recognized in hindsight when the community looks back on events and then sees with clarity that hindsight brings how exactly God was at work. I was supposed to teach on Providence at Houston Baptist University in a class. I was driving my, uh, up there on, on January, uh, in January of this, this past year. And on my way, I was on uh, Highway 59 going up. Uh, a truck came and swerved into my lane uh, trying to get on the, the highway. I swerved out of his way to avoid getting hit. And then my car started to spin and lost the wheels. I did three full spins across moving traffic in the middle of the day of Highway 59. If you've ever been a part of a situation like this, time flows down. You experience thoughts and experiences that you normally otherwise wouldn't experience in such a short amount of time. 
I can remember spinning and thinking certain mean thoughts about the truck that cut into my lane. Quickly, that shifted to, this is how my life ends. This is how it goes. Not time to be sad about it, just an observation. And I can remember clearly, this all happens within seconds, right? Two seconds, maybe. Three seconds, four seconds. I can clearly remember thinking, at any time now, a Suburban coming up Highway 59 North, going 70, 75 miles an hour, is going to hit me, and things are going to get very bad. And then before I know it, I'm thinking, I think I made it through traffic. I think I'm on the other side of the lanes. Somehow a car did not hit me. And then I see concrete headed my way very fast. And so I prepare to, to meet this impact. Hit the concrete. I'm fine. I'm okay. The car's totaled. It did what it was supposed to do. It collapsed around me, protected me. Now, in that moment, there's a lot of things going on that I don't know or understand or really want to think about. Why did that happen? What were all the events that led to me being safe versus someone else who's in a crash who perhaps doesn't be safe because of it, doesn't get out of it alive or unscratched? In hindsight, though, I can look back and I might say, God protected me in that moment. And I might think about certain events that I wouldn't have thought about at the moment. Like while I was on my way out the door that morning, my dog had started to chew up a pillow and I was delayed 30 seconds. I might think, what if I hadn't been delayed? Would that have made an impact on what had happened? Or I start thinking through all the other variables involved. What if the Suburban that I saw that I thought was going to hit me was actually coming a little early than it was supposed to? She or he was in a rush to get where they were supposed to. There could be thousands of variables, right? That's what happens to me. Here's what I know and don't know. I know that I was fortunate to come out unscratched. I don't know why. I believe God protected me, but I also believe God protects the people who get hurt. If I had gotten hurt, if I hadn't have made it, I wouldn't be here to tell you this, but I, it wouldn't have shaken my confidence that God is in control of history's events, that my salvation is secure, that all things, including this, would work out for good. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. It doesn't, it doesn't shake my conviction, my confidence, but it does humble me to say it's not so easy to say exactly why this person got out okay, this person didn't, this area was hit, this area wasn't hit. This is why God protected those people or didn't protect those people. Providence does not give me an excuse to play God. It gives me an excuse to worship and be humble. It's part of God's mysterious plan in creation. And we might say this to, to wrap it up, that providence is an outworking of God's wisdom. It's surrounded in mystery, and it's ultimately a statement of faith. This conviction or confidence we have that God will superintend history to its intended goal for creation is not something we know and can diagram. It's something we trust and believe. And it's not naive optimism it's not a catchphrase we can throw at suffering. It was bought for us. This, this 
conviction, this confidence was bought for us on the cross. We've not only been given an example of the most ultimate evil, God in the flesh being killed, being worked for good into the most ultimate gift of salvation creation's ever received. We've not only seen that happen, and so therefore can look at anything else and say, if that's possible, all of this is easy picking for God. I have confidence, I have conviction. We also know that once God has made that sacrifice, like Paul says here, why would he, why would he get deterred by something smaller? Like if I had paid you a million dollars to come here to church, and then on your way here, you had a fat tire, and you called saying, I need 50 bucks to get the tire fixed to come to church, why would I say, no, that's too much? Just stay there. I can't afford the tire. No, you say, he gave me a million dollars, so he'll give me $50. That's the logic here in Paul's thought. If he who gave his own life for your salvation is the one who you have trust in, what is going to come that will separate you from that love? What sacrifice might be required of God? What power or wisdom might be required of God that he can't do that once he's already done this? We're more than conquerors in this this passionate language where Paul just blurts out all types of things that might keep us from the love of God, might keep us from God's plan or desire. And he says, none of them can touch. can touch us because of who God is and what he's done for us on the cross. I end with a a story about Julian of, of Norwich again. Toward the end of her life, she was contemplating, thinking on, experiencing the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And she came to be convinced. She was worried that people would believe in God's power to the expense of God's love. They believed God was so powerful that they might doubt how loving he was, if he controlled everything, if all was just a direct result of his power. She became convinced, looking at the cross, that God's power and love are combined. That they're wrapped together on the cross. That God's power is a cross power. It's a power through suffering, a power through weakness, apparent weakness. Life comes through death. This is the story of death and resurrection. She contemplates all of this. Julian herself was someone who was not uh, unfamiliar with suffering. So during her lifetime, the plague, the plague swept through her city twice. This is a woman who has images irrevocably placed in her mind of the destruction of a disease, seemingly random, taking out good and bad people alike. And she comes to say this. As she meditates on the cross, God's love embodied on the cross, she sees, and then I quote her, the passion of our Lord, his suffering, is comfort for us against all evil. And so is his blessed will. Because of the tender love that our good Lord has to all, He comforts quickly and sweetly, meaning thus, it is true that sin is the cause of all pain, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and every manner of thing shall be well. Now this 
faith she has, this confidence, this conviction that all will be well, is not naive. It's not blind optimism. It's born out of her experience of suffering, her experience of God's love, and born out of a contemplation of Jesus on the cross. It's born out of a person who who is gazing at the cross of Christ, where there and only there might you be able to state that you've seen God's response to evil and suffering. And it's the power and mercy and victory of Jesus. And because of that, all shall be well. This, I think, is the ultimate conviction and confidence providence is meant to give us. As people who follow the crucified and risen one, as people who see God's love and salvation worked out on the cross and through the resurrection. No amount of evil or suffering might come in front of us, come into our path, come upon those we love or know that will be able to shake us from that conviction that nothing can separate us from this love, that all shall be well. And as we come to the table this morning to remember and worship the one who was crucified on our behalf, who was resurrected for our victory in life, I invite you to come with this conviction renewed and sustained, that all things will work together for our good, and that all shall be well. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. I pray that you would be with us uh, as we get no easy answers most of the time to our deepest questions. We instead get an experience of you, a relationship with you. We get to see you sacrifice your life for us on the cross. We get to receive the power of your resurrection, the promise of your spirit to redeem all things. And we get to say with complete confidence, in spite of whatever might happen or come, that we know all will be well, all will be made new you will see creation to its intended goal of salvation and redemption, of eternal life. And so we have faith. We have confidence. We have worship. We praise you. And we ask that you would allow us to more and more realize this faith that we have. That nothing in history... Nothing we do or that can be done against us will separate us from your love. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.